The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Here. So Ecclesiastes chapter number 12 is where we will be. Over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series of messages that we've simply entitled Gods at War. And we've been looking at how different gods, little g gods, really war for supremacy in our hearts and lives. Our theme text has been Ezekiel chapter number 14 verse 3, where the word of God pro- proclaims, these men have set up their idols. Idols, their little gods in their hearts. As you study the Word of God, you find that the Bible uses a lot of imagery and metaphors to describe spiritual things. So when we're talking about idolatry, we are simply referring to anything that usurps God's authority in our lives. Anything that can trump God's authority in our lives. Anything that can set the agenda for what our lives are to be and how we are to live. And and that's really what God is referring to when he uses the visual imagery when he uses the metaphor of idol. Literally, it's anything that has taken God's rightful place of supremacy, God's rightful place of authority in our hearts. The Bible says that thing, whatever it is, that even a good thing can become an idol. It becomes a, what we've been calling a God thing. This topic of idolatry or supremacy of something else other than God in our hearts is actually referred to over 1,000 times in the scripture. And we've been saying it this way, if you turn your eyes to the screen, that we, whenever we turn something, we turn something into an idol when we seek after anything smaller than Jesus to give us what only Christ can give us. Uh, The reality is... Every good gift, James tells us, and every perfect gift cometh from above. How many of you are thankful for God's gifts? How many of you are thankful for God's blessings in your life? I think all of us would say, hey, I am thankful for God's gifts, and I'm thankful for God's blessings. However, when we allow one of God's gifts, we allow one of his creations to usurp his authority in our life, then that gift, in essence, becomes a God. And when the gift becomes a God, when it, when it takes a place of authority, when it takes a place of supremacy, that thing becomes an idol. So you say, why are we in the book of Ecclesiastes here this morning? Well, there's an interesting character found in the book of Ecclesiastes. His name is King Solomon. Uh, many of you know King Solomon is one of the wisest men that ever lived. And because of this wisdom, because of his uh, knowledge, you could say, my, he had an impressive life. And he literally lived his life in search of fulfillment. He lived his life in search of meaning. He lived his life looking for satisfaction. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to find King Solomon looking at everything to try to find this meaning, trying to find this fulfillment, trying to find the satisfaction. You say, what does he do? In the early chapters, you find him looking at education and knowledge. And if he can just get more education, just get more knowledge, that maybe that'll fill the void that's in his heart. And then after a while, he turns to experiences and he thinks if he can enjoy all the experiences that this world has to offer, then that maybe will bring fulfillment and meaning to his life. Eventually, he turns to relationships. History, the Word of God records 
records for us uh, that he had hundreds of wives. I mean, he looked for in sex and in relationships to try to find this meaning, trying to find this satisfaction, trying to find this fulfillment. I think about that often. How, how would you like to have hundreds of mother-in-laws, guys? I mean, that, that would be fun, wouldn't it? I mean, and, and, but this is what he's going for. And he's looking for this satisfaction. He's looking for this fulfillment. He's looking for these meaning. And then in money, and he starts building things, and he's trying to find it in his possessions and in his accomplishments. And this entire book is King Solomon looking for fulfillment, looking for satisfaction, looking for meaning in everything that this world has to offer. And then we come to the very last chapter. We come to the very end of the book, and he's going to sum up in his life what all this amounted to. Inside your service program that you should have received on your way in, there's an outline that you can use to follow along through our Bible study here this morning. If you are physically able, uh, I'd like to invite you to stand out of respect for God's Word as we read really just a simple synopsis here of Solomon's life. I'm going to start and we're going to read a portion of it this morning here at the beginning. And then we'll read the rest of the passage here at the end of the service. But notice here just this one verse as King Solomon sums up his pursuit of significance, his pursuit of fulfillment, his pursuit of satisfaction in all these earthly things, these good gifts from God. But he, he, he turns them into idols and he looks to them to try to fulfill something in his heart. And here's what it says. Song of Solomon, chapter number 12, verse 8. Here's what Solomon says. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Or we could term it the teacher. All is vanity. So here Solomon gets to the end of his life. He's been pursuing fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning in all these things under the sun. In what, what happens at the end of his life? What, what does he say? What's his synopsis? He says it's all meaningless. It's pointless. It's vanity. It didn't bring me the fulfillment. It did not bring me the satisfaction. It did not bring me the meaning that I hoped that it would. Solomon had all the resources at his disposal. He had all the money he could ever want at his disposal. He had all the people to do whatever he, want, whatever he wanted for them to do at his disposal. And yet everything he pursued after, he could not find meaning in. He could not, not find satisfaction in. He could not find fulfillment in. And so at the end of his life, literally on his deathbed, he proclaims, It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It did not fulfill the way that I thought that it would. This morning, I want to speak on the subject of the idols of pleasure. In, in fact, I've kind of in a creative way tried to uh, label this sermon. I'm, I'm calling it the, the temple of pleasure. And we're going to find that as we go into this metaphorical temple of pleasure... That there are several little g gods that live in this temple of pleasure. Several idols that live in this little temple. And we're going to kind of spend some time walking through that here a little bit today. When I'm done praying in just a moment, I want to introduce you to Paul Jones. Who elevated a good thing to a position of God thing. And notice what he learned in the process. Let's pray. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, I pray that the individuals here today, I pray for myself included, God, that while we thank you and we bless you for your goodness, your gifts, and your blessings, that we would never allow those blessings to be elevated to a position of authority above your word in our lives. 
as we go to this temple of pleasure and we look at the little G-O-D gods that abide in this temple, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us eyes to see things do not satisfy. These things do not bring ultimate satisfaction, fulfillment, and meaning. And help us to find our meaning and satisfaction in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. I guess what I've finally learned is that God is not ultimately interested in my comfort. He's interested in my healing. And those things that I was doing, turning to food to feel better in the moment, rather than turning to Him for the ultimate healing of my heart, which is what I needed, it kept me from becoming who it was that God always intended me to be. Too often as human beings, you and I, we will settle for something less than God's best in our lives. We, I, I like to say it this way. We live below the privileges that God has for us. We think that we find our best in pursuing uh, this thing and pursuing that thing. And it will bring satisfaction. It will bring fulfillment. And it will bring meaning into our lives. And yet in reality what's actually happening is we are settling. God has something better. God has something greater. And yet the world kind of dangles these temptations in front of us. And so we pursue them thinking that it is in those pleasures that we will find our satisfaction. It's in these pleasures we'll find our fulfillment and our meaning. And so today we're going to take some time to really just kind of unpack this idea. Oftentimes as Americans when we're forced to choose between the Lord God as an authority in our lives and the God of pleasure, many Americans, here's what we say. We say, why do I have to choose? I want both. And many Americans, even Christian Americans, they're saying, why do I have to choose between allowing God to be authority and allowing the God of pleasure? I want pleasure and I want God. In fact, there are many, many traditions of churches that equate godliness with pleasure. That is, the more you have, the more you possess, the happier you are, the more spiritual you are. The problem is, that philosophy is not found within the pages of Scripture. If that were true, then Jesus Christ would have experienced no pain. Jesus Christ would have experienced no hurt because he was the most godly. And yet he indeed experienced this. You see, there's no equation between our, uh, how happy we are and how right with God that we are. Here's our theme for this morning as we move our way through the text. No earthly pleasure can fully satisfy the deepest needs of our heart. That's the foundation. That's what we attest to today, that there is no earthly pleasure that can satisfy the deepest needs of our heart other than the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to go to this temple of pleasure that we've metaphorically referred to and look at some of the pleasurable things that as human beings elevate themselves to a place of idolatry in our lives. So let's start with Ecclesiastes chapter number 9. In a moment, we're going to turn to verse 7. Here's what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter number 9, verse 7. It says, eat thy bread with joy. Uh, the Bible often talks about enjoying the pleasures of food. That God gives us food. It's something we can enjoy. In, in fact, there's one Bible passage that says, eat the fat and drink the sweet. God wants us to enjoy food. He wants us to 
Be thankful for the blessing of food. You see, my friend, food is a good thing until it becomes a supreme thing. Once food becomes a supreme thing, that good thing becomes a God thing. Which leads us to our first little G God in the temple of pleasure that we're going to look at this morning. And that is the God of food. The God of food. Now, how many of you would agree food is a good thing? (laughs) How many of you would agree God wants you to eat? Okay, I don't think there's anybody here who's arguing the fact that God does not want us to eat food. God created food. He's given it to us to serve us, to serve our health, to serve our bodies, to serve us as individuals. The danger comes when we allow the servant of food to become our master. And all of a sudden, before we know it, what was there to serve us, what was there to be a blessing to us, what was there to help us and encourage us, all of a sudden the servant becomes a master. The good thing becomes a God thing. That simple thing becomes a supreme thing. And before we know it, we're addicted. And we know what the doctor has said. We just can't help ourselves. And we have that moment where we realize this is not the best for me. And yet we overindulge again and again and again. There are no boundaries. We live in excess when it comes to the God of food. Now, understand, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with food. In fact, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with enjoying a dessert. Many of us will go out to eat after the service, and you might get yourself a dessert. You might get something that you know is a little unhealthy. The reality is this. God says that's a blessing. That's a good thing. And in moderation, it's a wonderful thing. In excess, as a slave, as a master, it's a bad thing. It's an unhealthy thing. And so a lot of folks go to the God of food looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, looking for, here's the word that's often used, comfort. How many of you ever heard the phrase before, comfort what? Food. Can I remind you of something? It's all right to go and enjoy an ice cream. If if you want to know what my like kryptonite is, it's cold stone ice cream. I love this stuff. You get to pick out your own flavors. You get to pick out your own stuff. You kind of get to go at this and go at that. It's an awesome, wonderful, good thing. The God of food. But when that good thing becomes a supreme thing, a God thing, all of a sudden what begins to happen, it's taking control. The God of food. Matthew chapter number 6 verse 25 says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat. Notice that. What shall ye drink, nor yet for your body? What ye shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Matthew chapter number 4 and verse number 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. John chapter number 6 verse 27 says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everything. 
everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. And so we see here in this passage two extremes. Now, let me talk about this for just a moment when we're talking about the idol of food. There is two extremes in this one. There are those people who overindulge in food beyond that which is healthy. They look to try to bring comfort to them rather than looking to the God of all comfort. And all of a sudden they become very unhealthy because they have made food an idol. Now, let me say it on the other extreme. There are also those who have turned food into a God. And these are the types. Now, bear with me. And they're like ultra healthy. And they only eat that and only eat that. Now, now get what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? Uh, To some degree, I'd maybe put my wife in somewhat of that category. And I'm thankful for her. I'm not preaching against my wife here today, all right? I'm not just trying to get out of drinking these smoothies that are green that she always feeds me, all right? That's not the point of this message. But it might be. But it it, it isn't. It really is. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating healthy. But when you look to that that healthy, organic this, and, and rather than just being a good thing that can serve you, now you're looking to that thing as your Messiah. Like, this thing's going to save me. And all of a sudden, that thing that I got to eat, all of a sudden gets this authority in your life. And, and now, now you can't properly prioritize other things because this thing has become a supreme thing. These are all gifts, good things in their proper place. They can be blessings and they can be gifts outside of their rightful place. They can be incredibly damaging I've never, never done this before, but I'm going to do it today. I, my, my kids were watching an animated film. And uh, in this film, there's these animals that uh, have found out that human beings are, like, they really like food. And I'm watching this thing, and I was going to try to describe it. But I hope you'll allow me the privilege here for just a minute. I'm going to take a minute. We're going to show you the clip. Have a little fun with it. And then when we're done, we'll get back to it in just a minute. They've always got food with them. We eat to live... These guys live to eat. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The human mouth is called a pie hole. The human being is called a couch potato. That is a device to summon food. That is one of the many voices of food. That is the portal for the passing of the food. That is one of the many food transportation vehicles. Humans bring the food, take the food, ship the food, they drive the food, they wear the food. That gets the food hot. That keeps the food cold. That, I'm not sure what that is. Ah, What do you know? Food! That is the altar where they worship. Food. That's what they eat when they've eaten too much food. That gets rid of the guilt so they can eat more food. Food! 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 So, you think they have enough? Well, they don't. For humans, enough is never enough. And what do they do with the stuff they don't eat? They put it in gleaming silver cans just for us. So what was that about? Obviously, the writers of whatever this was, they were being a little facetious, all right? And so we're not taking this as doctrine by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but, the rea- but the reality is this. You notice the phrase right at the very beginning? He made that statement, which I thought was somewhat profound. He says, as animals, uh, we eat to live. And some of those human beings, they live to eat. 
You see, there comes a point where food, a good thing, a servant, becomes a bad thing. It becomes a master. But here's what, here's what God goes on to say. John chapter number 6 verse 35 says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Psalms chapter number 34 verse 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed be the man that trusteth in him. Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so there's verse after verse after verse says, Hey, praise God for food. Praise God for the blessing. Praise God. God for the gift. But there's some, if you find that it's becoming addictive, if you find that you can't say no, if you find that it's surpassing that which is unhealthy, if you find that this good thing is becoming a God thing, he says, here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to know. You need to replace that good thing with God. Find and taste and see that he is good. Oh, find your fulfillment in Him and His presence and communion with Him. Replace that addiction, if it's there, with Jesus Christ. You see, the first little G God that we find in the temple of pleasure is the God or the idol of food. 1 Corinthians says this, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do it all to the glory of God. You see, in this passage, we're reminded that instead of what we eat being an object of worship, it can actually be an act of worship. Eating can truly glorify God when it's in its proper place. Oh, taking that time to enjoy what God has given us, to, to live this thing out, can honestly bring glory to God. We said it a couple of weeks ago that once something becomes an idol in our lives, it demands rituals and it demands sacrifices. And here's what I find out oftentimes. That when someone turns food into their idol... They will often turn their hell into a sacrifice. Food is a good thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a blessed, blessed thing. As a gift, as a gift. But as a god, as a master, as one in authority, it demands a sacrifice, and oftentimes that sacrifice is our very hell. On some occasions, as a pastor, I'll have to counsel some folks. And, and uh, not too long ago, I was talking to a gentleman, and he went to the doctor, and his doctor told him, listen, this thing's serious. If you don't start eating this way and this way and this way, literally, you're going to die. And it, was, it just broke my heart to see that even after that, even knowing in the face of death, he still continued to overindulge in a way that was seriously unhealthy that might be a sign that the good thing has turned into a God thing. That that good thing, that blessing has turned into an idol. It might be a mark that there's some idolatry at play in our hearts and in our lives. When no earthly pleasure can fully satisfy the deepest needs of our heart, we need Jesus for total fulfillment. So the first God we find in the temple of pleasure is the God of food. Now let's keep going on today. We're going to look at a second idol, a second God we're going to find in the, in the temple of pleasure here today. Hebrews chapter number 13 verse 4 says this. Hebrews 13 verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. 
You say, what is this passage teaching? This passage is teaching that sex is a good thing within the context of marriage. It was created by God. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful expression between a husband and a wife and showing their love and their appreciation for one another. But in American culture, this good thing, this beautiful thing, this wonderful thing within the context of what God defines as right has been elevated to a God thing outside the realm of what God says is healthy and what God says is appropriate. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 verse 18 says this, flee fornication. You say, what's that mean? It means sexual immorality. The Bible says, every sin that a man doeth is without his body, but he that committeth this sexual immorality, this fornication, sinneth against his very own body, which leads us to our second little G God in the temple of pleasure, and that is this, the God of sex. As we said a moment ago, sex is a beautiful thing. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. But when we look to experience it outside of God's ordained bounds of marriage, biblically defined marriage, that experience becomes a harmful thing. It becomes an unhealthy thing. And all of a sudden we find that that good thing gets elevated to a God thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 and verse number 3, God says... This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become like Jesus. So this is God's will for us, that we would become like Jesus, that ye should abstain from fornication, sexual immorality. Somebody once said it this way, many have bled on the altar of sexual pleasure. Many have bled on the altar of sexual pleasure. I find that as I talk to Christians about the subject, and we have to go through counseling on these types of things, basically I find three different types of individuals. There are those people who kind of deep down see sex as gross. We find people who see sex as God, supreme, driving, authoritative. It it dictates how they live and their behaviors and what they seek after. It's literally a supreme, authoritative thing. It's a God thing. Some that see it as a gross thing, and some that see it as a good thing, ordained by God within its proper context. Can I say this? Here at Ambassador Baptist Church, we do not believe that sex is a gross thing. Within the context, confines, and biblical definition of marriage, it's a wonderful, beautiful, great thing. God's gift to husbands, God's gift to wives. It's not a gross thing. But it is also not a God thing. It is not a supreme thing. It should not have a place of authority that sets our agenda within all of a sudden. Now we're, fi- we're looking to that, that pleasure outside the bounds of a biblically defined marriage. As a gift, sex brings connection. As a God, it causes loneliness. As a gift, sex brings pleasure. As a God, it causes emptiness. As a gift, it brings satisfaction. As a God, it demands slavery. As a gift, it brings intimacy. As a God, it brings separation. As a gift, it brings unity within a marriage. And I have seen so often, as a God, it often leads to divorce. You see, guarding our hearts in the world in which we live starts with guarding our eyes 
The Bible tells us in the scriptures that our eyes affect our hearts. And so to guard our hearts, we guard our ears, we guard our eyes, we guard our minds. Somebody once said to stay pure in the world in which we live. To live within the biblical confines of what God says is right. One needs to be godlier than David, wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson because you need Jesus in this area. Um, You and I, I think they're going to throw this on the screens. We have been designed so that the level of intimacy we can have with our spouse is directly related to the depth of intimacy we have with Christ. There's a correlation there. We were designed in the image of God. And there's a correlation between the two. Now maybe there's somebody here and you say, I hate to admit it, I have failed in this area. I've messed up. And I would say to you, praise God for his mercy. Repent. And align yourself through his power and his grace with what his word has to say on the subject. If you're a teenager here today, can I say to you, oh, that you would, that you would allow yourself to remain pure first and foremost for God and then for your future spouse. You see, sex within the confines of marriage is a beautiful God-ordained thing. Outside that biblically drawn bounds of marriage, it's a fire, the Bible says. uh, The Bible literally kind of uses that uh, idea of that which will burn. Proverbs chapter number 6, verse 27. Much like when a spark flies out of the fire pit and all of a sudden the forest catches on fire. Many are burned thereby when they do not allow their sexual pleasures to stay within the confines of a holy married relationship. Like every idol, an idol demands sacrifice and rituals. Unfortunately, there are many in our day and age and the ritual of their sex addiction has become a ritual of pornography. And now what we find is that ritual and those sacrifices which it demands are literally tearing us apart from the inside out. When someone turns sex into their idol... Often it's not long before they turn their marriage into a sacrifice. Within its proper place, within its biblically defined bounds, sex is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing, a God-created thing. But for those outside those bounds, there's a world of hurt and sorrow that ensues when we don't allow God to be the ultimate authority, but rather we allow our sex drive to set the agenda, to to set our priorities, and to be the authority in that arena. And so we see here, when no earthly pleasure can satisfy the deepest needs of our heart, we need Jesus for total fulfillment. Solomon looked for satisfaction. He looked for meaning. He looked for fulfillment in sexual areas and he found that it was vain, that it was empty, that it did not satisfy the deepest longings of his heart. It simply, it simply caused something to burn in his heart for more. A good thing becoming a God thing. We saw here the second in the temple of pleasure, the God of sex 
We saw the God of food. Now go to 1 Timothy chapter number 6 verse 17. We're going to see our third and final God. Third and final idol in the temple of pleasure. The Bible says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor, notice this, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. I want to declare to you once again that if you have a gift, if you have a blessing, if God's blessed you in some way, don't despise that gift. Don't despise that blessing. Thank God for that gift. Thank God for that blessing. Thank God for what He gives to you. That's not, you don't have to feel guilty you don't have to feel bad because you have a nice possession or you have a nice home or you have a nice car. I'm not telling you to feel guilty about that. Those things are from God and the Bible says enjoy it richly. But don't allow it to set the agenda. Don't give it a place of authority above God's word in your life. When all of a sudden, you know, golf becomes such a high priority in your life, you have no time to date your wife. That thing might be edging on idolatry there because your marriage is a higher priority uh, than your handicap score in golf for those of you who understand golf terminology. There's priorities. God-ordained, biblically set priorities. One of the ways we know if something is becoming an idol is when that thing that we love trumps something that God says should have a higher priority in our lives. It's one of the ways we know if something is, is starting to edge on idolatry. We must let God set the agenda. Entertainment and amusement is not intrinsically bad. But in our society, we have taken entertainment and we have taken amusement and we have elevated it in our society to a level of necessity, which leads us to our final little G God, the third idol here in the temple of pleasure this morning, and that is the God of entertainment. Entertainment in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not intrinsically wrong to sit down and watch some television or watch a movie per se or go to Disneyland or spend some time at the lake. That's not what we're trying to say here today. But when those things get elevated in our hearts to a place of authority and now those things become the driving force, now we, can, now we have to say no to God-ordained priorities because this thing is so important, because this thing is so valuable to us, because this thing is so important, we have to say no to what God says is important. That's when you know these things are teetering on idolatry here in our lives. The God of entertainment we see. I found this interesting. The average American consumes 4.5 hours of TV a day. That's average for American society. 4.5 hours. Now that includes TV that might be watched on a computer screen. That involves TV that might be watched, you know, on a phone. But 4.5 hours of television. This does not include social media and internet browsing per se. And so what we begin to find out is, man, in American society, entertainment and amusement Amusement has been elevated to a lofty place in our culture. One of the great things about Facebook and Twitter is going to be in the last day when we stand before God, our lack of prayer is not going to be because of lack of time. <laughs> It'll prove the fact. And I'm not against Facebook. Praise, praise God for it. If it helps you connect with people. And, and so don't take these things to an extreme. I'm not saying uh, shut it down, you know, commit social media suicide or something. What I am saying is just 
Put it in its rightful place. Allow it to have its proper priority in your life when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to uh, amusement. At some point, American culture went from just watching TV to whether they realized it or not to worshiping TV. It became such a priority in their life. It, it, it got to trump more important things. Men came home and instead of spending time with their children, they're glued to a screen. Women, instead of maybe fulfilling their God-ordained responsibilities hour after hour after hour in front of a soap opera, all of a sudden this amusement, this entertainment began to trump God-ordained priorities. And now we had to say no to what God says was good because we had areas that we wanted to elevate as a priority in our lives. Intrinsically, these things are not necessarily horrible. They're not necessarily wicked in their proper place. But in American culture, we have taken so many of God's good things, so many of God's blessings, and we have taken those blessings, we have taken those gifts, and elevate them to a supreme place in our hearts, into a supreme place in our lives to where now they get to set the agenda, they get to say what's important, they get to set the Uh, priority in our lives and it forces us to say no to some things that God says we should be saying yes to. Um, I thought this was interesting. The the word boredom, how many of you are familiar with this word boredom, all right? The word boredom actually didn't occur in English dictionaries until pretty recently. It was about the same time as the uh, industrial age came to pass, which happened to be about the same time modern entertainment began to evolve. Sociologists have done many studies and have found that the more and more amusement, the more and more entertainment that we are exposed to actually increases our potential for boredom in our lives. And it seems to be that the culture here, um, that it, it never in history, I should say, that there's been so much entertainment and so little satisfaction action. Many cultures in our world actually don't even have a word for boredom. Uh, one particular culture uh, that I was reading about this week, and uh, they had sent some sociologists there, the, the closest word that they could find to the word boredom was the word tired. They literally don't even have a word to describe this thing in some cultures. You say, what are the sacrifices and what are the rituals that are involved when somebody allows this good thing of entertainment and amusement to become a God thing in their life? When someone turns entertainment into their idol, they often turn God's priorities into a sacrifice. Hey, watching a movie, that's great. Spending some time, you know, at an amusement park, that's great. But once we allow those good things, those blessings, those things that God gives us to enjoy richly, and we make them supreme things, we make them authoritative things, we make them authorities in our life, what often happens when amusement, one of the ways we know if amusement and entertainment is becoming an idol in our life, is because it forces us to go through the rituals of watching another show, and we're going through these rituals to such a degree that all of a sudden now we're sacrificing God's priorities on the altar of our entertainment. And so we see these gods of pleasure here in this temple. The gods we find in the temple of pleasure, the god of food. Food's not intrinsically wicked or wrong or even an idol, but we can elevate it to a place of idolatry. Sex in and of itself is a good thing, a blessing. But if we're not careful, we will elevate it and we will begin to look to experience it outside the biblical bounds of marriage. 
becomes a God thing. Entertainment, amusement, praise God for it. But outside all that right priority that we find in God's word, it becomes a God thing. So what is important? I want you to finish. Let's, let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter number 12. We started with verse 8. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. A couple verses later, Solomon begins to say, Hey, you want to find fulfillment? You want to find satisfaction? You want to find meaning in your life? Here's the last verses of, his, of this book. He says this in verse 13. Let us hear now the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, I'm going to tell you what life really is about. I look for it in food. I look for it in pleasure. I look for it in relationships and in romance and in money and in possessions and in achievement. I look for it in all these areas. And he says, you want to know what I've come to? He says, this is what life's all about. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good and whether it it be evil. See, C.S. Lewis said it this way. If we, find our, if we find ourselves with desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And if we look for satisfaction and we look here for fulfillment and we look for meaning in these things and they just don't seem to fully satisfy. They kind of scratch and itch for a moment but then as quick as they were gone they're back again. And if you find in your life you just can't find that satisfaction. You just can't find that fulfillment. Oh we're reminded fresh and anew that our duty is to fear God. To commune with God. To live out his commandments in our lives. And we find that we truly were made for something more. And that more that we were made for was a dynamic personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just for salvation but for ongoing sanctification that every day our relationship with Jesus Christ would be nurtured and fostered and we would spend time in his presence. We would spend time communing with him just like we would a good friend and the Bible says it is in that relationship, that ongoing dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ is where you will find satisfaction that is where you will find meaning and that is where you will find true fulfillment. You say, what's the big idea of this message? It is this, that God is more concerned with your holiness than with your happiness. You say, what is holy? It is, it is your communion with God, your time with God, your transforming into the image of God. And God is willing to make your life and structure your life in such a way that you become like him because he is far more concerned that you become like Jesus than you're just happy. You say, you're saying God doesn't care about my happiness? I'm not saying that. But I am saying that he's more concerned with your holiness. He's not going to allow your happiness to trump what he wants to do in, your, in the holiness of your heart. That's the priority. And praise God when we experience his blessings and we get to be happy along the way. But it's holiness that is our main priority. The more vibrant our inner lives are, the less we need from the outside. The, more our, the, the deeper our relationship with Christ is and the more we're communing in his presence and being fed by his, his very presence in our hearts and lives, the more our inner lives are vibrant, the less we need from the outside. So I guess the question I want to end with today is this. How is your inner life? How is your walk with God? 
how is it when you come to spend time in the presence of God? Because if you don't find that, yeah, that walk with God, as sometimes we'll call it in church world, that communion with God is strong and dynamic, because you were designed for worship, you will replace that relationship with something else. And it might be food. It might be entertainment. It might be uh, sex outside the bounds of a biblically defined marriage. Because when this relationship isn't right, we go out and we try to find that fulfillment, that satisfaction in all these other things. So I ask you this question. How's this relationship? If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you didn't know you could have a relationship with God, I want to declare to you today this, that through the person of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross of Calvary when he died for the penalty and punishment of your sin and then three days later he rose from the dead, it was in this act that he purchased for you eternal salvation and he made it possible for you to have a relationship with God through his blood that was shed on the cross. Jesus made it possible for you to have a relationship with his father God and if you if you've never accepted Christ as your savior and maybe you're looking to food to be that savior you're looking for sexual pleasure to be that savior you're looking for entertainment to save you from a mundane monotonous boring life can I say this you need something more than that you need Jesus if you are saved today and you've had a time where you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, but you find your heart still yearns for those things, I might say to you this, maybe your inner life, your walk with God is not dy- as dynamic as it needs to be. The communion with God is maybe not what it ought to be. And I would encourage you, oh, surrender your heart afresh and anew to Christ and allow Him to commune with you and experience that daily communion that he longs to have with you through prayer. Oh, just through the word. Through the friendship that he wants to develop and continue to develop in your hearts. How's your inner life? How's your inner life? Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you.